means uh, that split this room into two. Uh, Some people in this room supported England last week in the rugby. Some people supported South Africa. Uh, Some people in this room are left-handed. Some people in this room are right-handed. Some people love football. Uh, Some people wish people loved football less. Um, There are lots of things that might divide us into two groups. But even those things, there's a bit of a middle ground, isn't there? You know, some people might have said they were neutrals last week. Um, Some people might be ambidextrous. Uh, Some people might not have strong opinions about football. But this morning, we're going to see something that does completely split this room into two. Uh, We are going to see the most important way that anyone is divided from someone else, those who believe in Jesus and those who don't. Um, This morning, we are in John chapter 10, and we've been jumping around uh, into John and into Isaiah, so I thought it'd be helpful to just recap where we are in the whole of John's gospel. There's lots of ways you could split up John's gospel. Um, Here's one way, though, that chapters 1 through 10, which we're about to finish today, that is Jesus's public ministry. Jesus going around, talking to lots of crowds, having lots of disputes. Um, Then we get a very special miracle where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, We'll be looking at that in a couple of weeks' time. And then the rest of John's gospel is set in Jerusalem in that last week of Jesus' life with the Last Supper and his arrest and death and resurrection. So this morning, that's where we are. Uh, We are right at the end of Jesus's public ministry. Uh, John says as much, actually, if we looked forward one chapter. In John chapter 11, he says, Therefore Jesus no longer moved around publicly among the people of Judea. So... That's what we're looking at today, the end of Jesus' public ministry, the last public word Jesus gives to people. Uh, And we see today there's a big confrontation between Jesus and a group of people. And that confrontation confronts us about whether we really believe in Jesus or not. Whether we believe in more than we could have ever imagined or whether we're going to go to uh, any lengths to reject Jesus. Jesus. Everyone in this room is either moving closer to Jesus or further away from him. Closer to treasuring his words, believing in him, or moving closer to go to any lengths to shut down all conversation about him. Um, I've got three lessons for us this morning. Uh, Here's the first one. Don't try and push Jesus away with questions. Don't try and push Jesus away with questions. And we're looking down, um, starting at verse 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The festival of dedication, a bit of an interesting festival. John mentions festivals quite a few times. In his narrative, but this is the only one that isn't in the Old Testament. The festival of dedication started after Malachi, after the end of the Old Testament, um, in 
the year, well, in the year 167 BC, Jerusalem got taken over by an Assyrian king. And then three years later, the Jewish people rallied. They freed their city. They freed their temple. And they celebrated that by rededicating the temple to God. Uh, This festival is more commonly known as Hanukkah in modern day times and is commemorated by Jewish people lighting candles like the one behind me in their um, houses. Uh, There is a very famous Jewish historian. He's writing just after Jesus was alive. He's called Josephus. This is what he says about the festival of dedication and candles. He says this, we light candles because of the right to worship God shone on us when we, dare, when we hardly dared to hope for it. It's a festival that remembers the Jewish people being delivered when they thought they couldn't be delivered. And it's loaded with expectations that God's going to deliver his people again. That the Messiah is going to appear and save everyone. And... In Jesus' time, there are still foreign rulers, the Romans, in charge. So this festival's got a lot of uh, deeper connotations. But more so than the Romans, there is a deeper oppression surrounding Jerusalem at the time of this festival of dedication. Jerusalem is under spiritual oppression from their own rulers, the Jews, the Pharisees, the people that oppose Jesus, that fail to believe in the one standing in front of them. John mentions it's the winter time. Uh, I don't think he's making any bigger point about spiritual darkness there. I think he's just mentioning the time. Um, and it's common in the winter um, around the temple to seek shelter. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in Solomon's colonnade, which interestingly is one of the few things left standing after the Assyrian destruction 200 years earlier. So these these Jews, these Jewish leaders, these Pharisees, they confront Jesus, verse 24, the Jews who are gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, you, you could interpret this question in, in a favourable light. You could interpret this question as a genuine question or a desperate one. They really want the Messiah to appear. But when you look at Jesus' response and when you look back at the whole of Jesus' ministry so far, you can see they're using this question really to try and push Jesus away, not bring him closer. Jesus says as much. Verse 25, look down with me. Jesus answered, I did tell you. Now, he could be referring to a whole manner of things. If you look back at Jesus' public words in the gospel, you see he has answered he is the Messiah and so much more. He has said he is the son sent into the world by the Father. He is working for God the Father's will. He is the son that gives life to all he pleases. Jesus has already said he's been entrusted with the judgment of the whole world. He said he is the deciding factor whether people get eternal life or not. He has said he has come in the name of the Father. He says that Moses has written about him. He said he is the bread of life. He says that no one has seen the Father except through me. 
He says that he is sent by the Father. He says all of his teaching and his authority come from the Father. He's already said he's the light of the world, that God is his own witness as his Father, that he's not of this world, that he's the only one that can free from sin, that, that everybody who belongs to God, a sign they belong to God is that they believe in him. He said that before Abraham was, he was, that he existed before Abraham did. He said he is the I am of the Old Testament, that his opponents are blind, that, uh, that he's going to bring judgment. And in John chapter 10, he's already said he's the good shepherd that's going to gather in the sheep of Israel, that he's going to give up his life for those sheep and take it up again. So Jesus has already said that he is the Messiah and so much more. But he's done more than speak. Jesus goes on to say, verse 25, the works I do in my father's name testify about me. The works he does as well as his words. Water into wine showing he control, has control over every atom in the whole universe and he uses that for joy. The healing of an official son to show his power over disease with just a word. The reversal of a man's 38-year paralysis with just eight words. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. The providing of food for 5,000 men and their families from just five loaves and two fish. Freeing of a man born blind from his affliction with just some mud and some spit. No, Jesus has left more than enough words and works to persuade people that he is the Messiah and so much more. But that's not how the Jews see it. Let me read verse 25. I deliberately left out a bit. The, Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe. See, the problem with their unbelief, the problem with all unbelief in Jesus is not the amount of evidence in front of someone, but it's who is looking at the evidence. The world is full of bias, which means we draw different conclusions from the same evidence. Someone from South Africa and someone from England might have very different opinions about last week's match, uh, especially that last scrum. Uh, a Tory supporter and a Labour voter, they might have very hugely different opinions about the same political idea. People right now are looking at the Middle East and drawing completely different conclusions, aren't they? And there have already been people in John's Gospel that have seen less evidence than these Jews have, but have decided to believe in Jesus. John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God. Andrew and Nathaniel say he's the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel. There is a Samaritan town called Sychar, full of believers because of what Jesus has already done in John's gospel, because of his words and his works. But Jesus says, no, these men in front of him, they don't believe him. Their question is not genuine. They're just using it to push him away. And then Jesus gives the reason. Verse 26 but you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. This ties into earlier conversations in John chapter 10 and a picture that's been intertwined into Israel's history since almost its inception. Israel are the sheep. God is the shepherd. 
Jesus is, is making a very divine claim by calling himself the shepherd here. And he says, no, these Jews, they're, they're not my sheep. They're not my sheep because they don't do all the things John chapter 10 has already said they do. They're not listening to him. They don't know his voice. He lays his life down for his sheep. He knows his sheep. They know him. These sheep are from all over the world and will be gathered in to one flock, listening to one voice of one shepherd. But these Jews at Solomon's colonnade, no, Jesus says, you are not my sheep. Therefore, they cannot see who the shepherd is. They cannot identify his voice. The evidence is there, but they're not listening. And no, they have not been listening for quite some time. And the tragedy of this unbelief, it's it's palpable, isn't it? They're right by the temple. These are people that should be the first in line to be the sheep of God's shepherd. But they don't. They don't see it because they don't want to. And I wonder if there are people here this morning who are like that. In fact, I almost guarantee there are some people here this morning who are like that. Who ask questions like this. If only God would do this thing in my life plainly, then I'll believe. If the Bible said this instead of what it really says, then I would believe. Then I would have faith. If there was just this type of evidence that I know doesn't exist, then I would really believe. See, just like these Jewish people in John 10, many people in the world, under a guise of genuine searching, use questions to push God away and change the goalposts of what evidence really is. But Jesus has told by his words, he has shown by his works, that he should be believed on as the Messiah in numerous ways, but these people cannot see it. They cannot see it. They are not his sheep. The disciples and John, those people from Sychar, they are part of Jesus' sheep. But these Jewish people, they refuse to listen. They are deliberately blind to the evidence in front of them. And therefore, they miss out on all of the blessings that the sheep get. That's where Jesus goes on to say, verses 27 to 30, Jesus lists all the the blessings, the security, the wonder of what it is to be uh, God's uh, sheep. They are led by him as a good shepherd. The shepherd takes full responsibility for the lives of the sheep. What protection there is to be led by God himself. They are given eternal life. Verse 28, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Can I encourage uh, believers here this morning that Jesus has given you eternal life? That because of Jesus, you are going to live with him forever. Where there'll be no more tears or pain. That means that believers that are not here anymore, they are just waiting for us in paradise. 
that can never perish or spoil or fade. Look how secure that eternal life is. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. See, God's sheep, they're they're given from the Father to the Son. They're kept by that united desire to keep the sheep. The, The Jews are getting far more than they asked for, aren't they? They only said, tell us if you're the Messiah. Maybe tell us if you're going to rid us of the Romans. And Jesus instead here is giving them clear statements about his divinity, his eternal plan of God, not just to save earthly Jerusalem there and then, but God's people forever. Jesus and the Father are one. Now, there are many sermons you could give, just about verse 30, I think. We've got to be very careful as we um, tread on this ground. We don't want to downplay or corrupt or misrepresent who God really is. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, what he is not saying is that he, God the Son, and God the Father are identical. Or somehow that, that Jesus is some sort of mask or body that God wears. No, God the Father and God the Son, they're, they're not the same. And that would make no sense if they were, because of the myriad of passages where they communicate. Especially, I think, on the cross, God the Father did not die on the cross. But instead, he is hearing Jesus cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus cannot be saying, I and the Father are one. There is a distinction, but there is also a huge unity between Father, Son, and Spirit. There is a tri-unity, you might say, of purpose and joy and relationship and divinity, all sharing what it is to be God whilst being three distinct persons. And Jesus gives a very plain example of how united, how indivisible, yet distinct, the Father and Son are here. I was very helped by John Piper. He, in a sermon I was listening to on this, he, he just asked the question, whose hands are the sheep in, in these verses? Because you read verse 28, they're in the Son's hands. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. But then you read verse 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Well, what do you do with those two verses? How, what, how, how do you explain the sheep being in the son's hand and the father's hand at the same time? Well, Jesus' explanation is this. I and the father are one united in their desire, their purpose, their plan, their achievement in keeping their sheep. Jesus is so clearly the Messiah. It's it's almost ironic, that question that you go back to in verse 24. He's so clearly the Messiah and so much more. There's no need of more evidence. There's no need of more answers. But the Jews are asking a question, not to find out more, but to push him away. Don't do that. Don't push Jesus away with your questions. That's a trap even believers we can fall into. Second lesson, even more to the point, don't reject 
Jesus. Don't reject Jesus. Verse 31, again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. Again, their hearts are as hard as the stones in their hands as they seek to use them to beat the man in front of them to death. Jesus' opponents, they are seeking to kill and destroy, just like he said they would in John 10.10. This is, a, this is a constant pattern in John's gospel. In John 5, they sought to kill Jesus because of his works on the Sabbath and he claimed to be God. In John 7, Jesus had to move to Galilee to avoid them because they're looking to kill him. In chapter, in John, later in John 7, they seek to arrest him. In John 8, they pick up stones. And again here, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you trying to stone me? The point is obvious. Jesus is saying, well, my works are good. I have brought healing and life and hope to those who are touched by them. How can you harm a man who is helping the lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see? I'm clearly from God. Why are you trying to stone me? Well, these Jewish opponents, they've thought this objection through. They've been building their case for months, if not years at this point. Verse 33, we are not stoning you for any good work. They know they don't really have any ground to stand on with that. They replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, literally you being a man, claim to be God. See, these Jewish leaders, they lack any category for what Jesus has done and said. They, they can't see how he's the Messiah and so much more. The temperature is rising. The stones are still in the hands of people at Solomon's colonnade. So, so Jesus, to diffuse that situation, gives them a theological uh, query, something to, to make them stop and make them think. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said, you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one from whom the father has set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. It gets quite technical at this point. Um, Jesus is quoting from Psalm uh, 82 that uses a very interesting phrase. It describes a group as gods. I've highlighted them in red. And it's, it's important just to say right at the start, Psalm 82 and Jesus, neither of them are arguing for polytheism. They are not saying there is more than one God. There is only one God. There is no other. Um, and Jesus says as much, uh, if you follow with me, uh, down in verse 35, he says, if you call them gods, to whom the word of God came. So Jesus is saying, th this, is, this is a group of people that received God's word. They are not God themselves or gods themselves. That, that phrase is, is meaning something else. Um, I was very helped by Don Carson. He's written a very big book about John's gospel. Don Carson says you've got three options with this. 
that these gods are either Israel's judges, Israel's leaders, that's why they're called gods, because they have authority, or they are angels, because they're very powerful, and that's why they're kind of called gods, or they are Israel um, at the time of the giving of the law. Israel, when Moses was the leader, Israel, when they walked around the desert, and Don Carson says, and I'm going to agree with him, that the third option um, is, is probably the most helpful one, um, mainly because that's what rabbis at the time think. There's a few other technical reasons why you could land on there. But, but the point is, Jesus saying, any of these options are not God, but they're kind of called God. So you can't stone me for blasphemy for saying I'm the son of God, when in the Bible, in your scriptures, different group, a group, is called God or God's. So he's not saying, I am God, because there are loads of gods. Instead, he's saying, I can use divine language, because the Bible does, about some other people as well. See, he's just trying to disarm them, really. He's just trying to make them pause and think while they have stones in their hands about to seize and kill him to make them think about their own scriptures. And then he goes on, he goes on to positively say, do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as a believer in Jesus, Jesus says, don't believe me. Don't believe in me unless I can do the works of my father. But to turn that around, if Jesus has done the works of his father, then you must believe in him. You must believe in him to understand who God is, who you really are, and what life and eternity is really about. But the Jews won't have it, will they? Verse 39, again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. These words, Jesus' works, they still leave, if you're not his sheep, they still leave people hardened to seize and resist and kill him. And perhaps this morning you are doing this. You have heard this morning of Jesus' power, but you won't have it. You still have metaphorical stones in your hands. You wish to rid yourself of the idea of following Jesus and not yourself. Perhaps even as believers, there are areas of our life when we would rather stone Jesus than listen to him. Let me invite you particularly, if you're not a believer, in the gospel to change your mind. See, Jesus loves these men that hate him so much that if being stoned by them would make them believers, that's what he would have allowed to do. He would have allowed himself to be beaten to a pulp and killed right there. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't let himself get arrested or killed by the temple in Jerusalem because he knows that he's come to die in a different way. He knows he's come to die, not by the temple, but just outside Jerusalem's walls. See, Jesus loves his sheep. He wants to increase the number of his sheep. And if that's not you this morning, 
the message of Christianity is not, therefore you are outside, but come in. See, Jesus knows he's got to die, not by stoning there and then, but on the cross. See, on the cross, Jesus spread his arms and gave his life so that people who rejected him could inherit eternal life. Everybody in this room has rejected God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, the sin of us all. And Jesus has done that to to take up his life again to give eternal life. Perhaps today is the day that you finally put down your stones at the foot of the cross. Our second point this morning, don't reject Jesus. Don't reject Jesus. Our final point, believe Jesus. Believe Jesus. There's a curious last section. It feels a bit tagged on, really, by John. Let me read it. Then Jesus went back across to the Jordan, to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. The opposition Jesus has faced has forced him to flee Jerusalem. What a failure! Or so it seems. Because Jesus returns to where his ministry began in John chapter 1, out by the Jordan, around people without much influence on Judean politics, around people far less impressive than the Jews that have just rejected him. And there he stays, and many come to him. They believe John at his word. They take Jesus at his. They don't need signs. They don't push him away with questions. Many believe in him there. And I think John adds this on just to say there are always sheep being added in, even as others are rejecting. There are always sheep being added in, being gathered in by Jesus, people that take Jesus at his word. Notice these people didn't even need a miracle. They take John didn't do any signs, but they believe John's word and Jesus' word. They are his sheep. They are those who inherit eternal life that life that can never be snatched away. They are those who are being drawn into that unity of Father and Son and Spirit for eternity. So don't push Jesus away with questions. Don't reject him. Believe in him as the one the Father sent. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you love us enough to challenge us. You love us enough to endure our rejections and our false questions. That you love us enough to give us the Lord Jesus so that we might believe in him. We thank you that Jesus avoided being stoned here so that he might die on the cross for us. We thank you that he rose again to give us eternal life. We thank you that if we are your sheep, we have been given to never be snatched away. And we pray that you would 
increase our belief in your son, the one whom you sent into the world. And we pray for your spirit's help to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.